a while, I'll make a little stage arrangement here. Anybody else feeling kind of harried and a little bit frantic, a little frazzled? I don't know what it is about this week. I don't know who schedules church on the day the World Cup opens, but that's just a bad move. That's just a sad, sad state of affairs. Priorities, exactly. We've got to get our priorities straight. In case you need to know my allegiances in world affairs, my two favorite countries are right here on the, the, the front of my jacket. Can anybody read that? It's a slow-burning joke. Y'all got to wait. Texas and England. Come on, guys. Wake up. Wake up. There we go. <laughs> I love Mexico, too. That's okay. Left one out there. So good morning. It's good to see you all. We always talk about who's going to possibly show up the Sunday before Thanksgiving, figuring most of you would be on the road. You must be all the parents of kids in sports who schedule such shenanigans like the day before and the day after Thanksgiving, right? Lamar was telling me stories this week about like, are you serious? You want kids to work out on the 26th or the day after or whatever? Makes no sense at all. But here we are. It's good to see you on this cold Sunday morning. It's good to be back. Today's a special day. I don't know if you are aware, but today is actually the final day of the church calendar. How many people, now don't, no cheating, how many of you actually knew that before you walked in the room today? I want to know where my Episcopalians are and my Roman Catholics. Yeah, some of you knew that. It's actually the final day of a season called Pentecost, which extends all the way from right after Easter until now. The calendar begins, the church calendar begins with Advent, which of course begins next week. And you would only know such things if you're a nerd like me, church calendar nerd like me. Today actually has a title. It's called Christ the King Sunday, which always felt a little tongue-in-cheek if you ask me since Jesus consistently refused the title of king, Christ the King Sunday. But that never stopped people of faith, never discount our ambition. You see, the institutional church has been violently retrofitting Jesus into all sorts of self-serving roles ever since he left. That's supposed to be funny in a pathological way. Most of us know Jesus refused all such authoritarian identities overtly and on more than one occasion. But we can't just let Jesus' lack of vision dampen our own, right? We've been known to make of Jesus whatever we need. And if we need a king in order to feel less small and less unseen, well, by God, we will have to make one out of what's left over of his memory. And that would be comical if it wasn't, again, pathological, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Today's text comes to us from the second to last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. You know, I wrote penultimate here, but I thought that sounded pretentious all of a sudden. I changed that on the fly. This just goes to show you how many things I can do at once here. Jesus, or today's text comes from the book of Luke, the second to last chapter. And here's my suggestion as we read this. It'll be on your screen. Keep an eye on the players in this scene. This one is an odd little scene with a strange little cast. And it reads this way, Luke 23. And if you really don't like Luke, we get a break starting on Advent. We'll be done with the story of Luke for a few weeks. Luke chapter 23, verse 32 reads this way. Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place they called, that, that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And that's a little bit of an added commentary from Luke himself. No one argues that that's actually what Jesus said. And if you have a Bible, you'll see that it's actually in brackets, and it'll direct you to that fact. Carrying on, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing, and they cast lots to divide his clothing. And then the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, he has saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself, verse 38. There was also an inscription over him, right over his head, this is the king of the Jews, it read. 
One of the criminals who were hanging there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Tiny little bit of commentary here. It wouldn't have mattered who you were or how your life went if you died on a cross, a Roman cross, if you were Jewish. That was your condemnation. There was no recovery from that. And this second thief understood that. Verse 41. And we indeed have been condemned justly for, for we're getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, this is Jesus. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Bit of an enigma there. Church has wondered about that for centuries. So what do we have here? What do we have in this little story, and why would this fall on a day like today? Well, I'm going to admit right out of hand that some of this is culturally remote for us. Sour wine on a sponge on a long stick, stick that sounds like kombucha, which is just straight nasty. That's probably why I don't like kombucha. Don't drink vinegar either, in case you need to know. So sour wine on a sponge on a stick. What about this casting lots for bloody clothes? That's weird. Luke seems intent to point out that the people watched, but the leaders scoffed, and the soldiers mocked him with this whole sour wine bit, and thief number one insulted him, according to thief number two, who bizarrely understood somehow. This isn't the complete picture of what happened on the cross in that place called the skull. This is only Luke's memory. The other writers would go on to add their own twists in time, but only Luke gives us these two thieves, for which I'm grateful, and you'll see why in a minute. But here's a question for us. Does this feel like the way a king might die to you? Is this how a king goes out? And if it is, are you sure you want to take your place in his court? It's an honest question, really, if you think of it. How are we to distill any sort of kingly thoughts about Jesus whose life ends with a scene like this? Where does this idea of Christ the King Sunday come from anyway? Well, the origins of, a, of this Christian Holy Day go back only as far as 1925, and as I thought of that this morning, that's only 100 years ago. It's coming up in a few years. That's when Pope Pius XI created it in response to his sense of growing secularism and atheism. And like the last fitful jerks of a dying beast, the institutional church in the 1920s created all sorts of new ideas to reassert her ancient but withering authority. And that's said with sarcasm bunnies authority. Now, if you're a historian, you'd know that this is also roughly the time, the same time that evangelical fundamentalism is born, and for similar reasons. Well, in more recent years, perhaps due to the growing post-colonial voice within the church, some of the more woke forms of Christian expression have attempted a bit of a gentle rebranding of this day. They don't refer to this as Christ the King Sunday. They refer to this as the Reign of Christ Sunday, which shifts the emphasis a bit, I guess. But actually, if we're honest, it doesn't help much. Change the name if you must, but the church's obsession with power and authority and an earthly king, they still live on. You see, marketing is just that, marketing. And whenever we feel weak, we reach for a king, even if we have to create one. Twas always thus. Now, of course, the Christian church has always fantasized about crowning themselves a King Jesus, but it's never really actually worked. If you're honest, it turns out it's not that easy to make an identity stick to a person who overtly refuses it. There really is no credible argument for a King Jesus, in my opinion, not as far as I can see. Unless, friends, unless we define kings some other way. 
So here's my point. Jesus left no army, no economic or legal legacy. He wrote nothing down. He never personally bothered assembling a sacred text of his own. He failed to set his people free from the hands of their oppressors. He built no palaces. He left no monuments, no monolithic structures oriented to the winter solstice tray. You and I know what we're talking about there. He amassed no wealth. He didn't do any of those things. Gosh, he didn't even take for himself a queen to bear him sons. If Jesus was a king, as the church has long quipped, he was hardly a remarkable one. His kingship hardly stands out. Friends, on this Christ the King Sunday, I get to remind you that conventional notions of kingship and kingly reign never stuck to Jesus. Again and again, he disallowed such associations, such affiliations, such small assumptions of the warp and the woof of his work in the world. Now remember, the story of John 6, I wonder if you recall where this rowdy crowd seemed to gather and they tried to forcefully coronate Jesus king. That's when he jumped out the bathroom window at the party and he headed for the hills. It's always the bathroom window at the party, right? I want a bathroom with a window where you can jump out into a soft hedge just in case. But he headed for the hills to the dismay of this mob. You see, you could hardly blame them, though, for envisioning King Jesus. Their other king was a Lannister, a monster. I'm giving away my TV habits now. <laughs> I get what they must have been thinking to themselves. You see, we build our object, objects of worship to, uh, to meet whatever our felt needs are at the time. But Jesus wasn't a king, that is. He actually corrected people who referred to him that way. I think kingship and kingdoms and all this kingly rhetoric was actually quite distasteful to Jesus. And as I pointed out before, Jesus spoke Aramaic, a lost language. And no matter what Luke or the others wrote down in Greek several decades after Jesus spoke these words, the ideas of a king and a kingdom were totally foreign to Jesus' original teaching and language. A kingdom is a Greco-Roman idea. That thought doesn't live well within Aramaic vernacular. Friends, kings and kingdoms and such things were all metaphors that the friends of Jesus chose through which to pull their memories of him. But a metaphor must never be confused with the object that it, that it describes, partially at best. Now again, I understand why they would have used a metaphor like this, why these metaphors of all optional metaphors were chosen, but Jesus wasn't a king no matter what Greek word Luke uses to retell what happened that day. Metaphors are just that, metaphors. The Bible is full of them. The first and second centuries were chock full of good people testing the limits of linguistic metaphor. The fact is, no one knew quite how to describe what the heck occurred in the life of this outrageous rabbi named Jesus. You see, the impact of his life grew with time, as did the language used to describe it. And this is how a wandering mystic committed to a life of poverty and service becomes a king. 40 to 50 years after the actual events occurs, occurred when these guys sat down to finally write, they would have obviously tried to elevate the regal significance of his life by heaping the metaphors on extra thick. And I know maybe you're not accustomed to admitting to the literary hyperbole in our text, but we probably should. Friends, sometimes the same writers would mix their metaphors and layer them in contradictory ways. They were trying to make sense of a very complex thing. And hear me, it was the shocking locatability of the divine within the world that they assumed was broken beyond repair. It's a stunning thing to make sense of, which is why they stretch language until you can see straight through it. We still do. Now, don't mishear me in any way. I'm not diminishing the life of Jesus. I'm just naming that what he seemed himself to name for us, and it was simply this, that he was no king unless, unless, friend, we redeem that concept somehow. You know what I think? 
I think this king concept, this king idea may in the end be far too small of a category for this man, even if it was the highest metaphor that his friends could use to describe him. Now think about it. A king would have overthrown Rome. A king of the Jews would have reestablished the sovereign autonomy of Israel at the very least. A king would have crushed one power with another, but that's not what happened, is it? Jesus' life ended the way a common criminal's might have on a Roman execution stake reserved for only the worst offenders. Now pause a second. Let's ask a different question perhaps of this scene. Do you feel like you need a king? Really? Now roll the clock all the way back, like 31 centuries back, roll it all the way back to the beginning. Remember the story when the baby nation of Israel first demanded a monarch? Back when judges and prophets led the people of God, they decided that they wanted to be like all other nations, so they demanded a king for their own. Samuel the prophet reluctantly agreed under protest, but Yahweh acquiesced and Saul was anointed. They certainly thought they wanted a king, but as predicted, they came to rue the day. And by the time Jesus came along, many generations later, people hadn't changed much. If anything, the popular craving for a powerful figure to destroy the enemies of the Jewish people increased. Decades after Jesus split, his friends thought they knew exactly what the world needed. Somebody to whoop on the Caesars, someone to oppress their oppressors, power to crush power, a king, of course. But the truth be told, I don't think Jesus talked about a kingdom at all, not in those terms. Sure, the disciples lusted for glory. We all have, we all do. They even argued about who would be the right and the left hand of Jesus. But the fact remains, kingship wasn't a native idea to his teaching, much less his way of being in the world. Unless, friend, unless we look at things a little differently. If a king is the one who gets the final word, if a king is the one who follows the counsel of his own wisdom, if a king is the one whose wit and whimsy become binding decrees, if a king can be as extravagant as he pleases simply because he pleases, then I would say crown this one now. Because this is a king who suffers, a king who extends mercy, deserved or undeserved, a king who offers immediate access to paradise, no revolution required. Crown this one post-haste is what I would say, even if it's just with the rough weaving of brambles and hedge row thorns. Crown him now. Coronate this naked man because there can be no finer demonstration of love and mercy than the one before us now. You do understand, right, friend of mine, good friend, that love and mercy are what true authority are actually made of. Authority isn't made of political power or perfect pedigree. The real stuff is made entirely of the stuff that suffers and bleeds and dies to show love and mercy to all. I don't know how thief number two of all the people in this dark and sinister place named the skull got it. I don't know how he understood it. I don't know how he saw it first, but he did. And he mouths a single request, and it sounds like the movie Coco to me. Recuérdame, he says. Remember me. When you step into the fullness, that you guys are so slow on the Spanish, my God, this is Texas. Y'all read your street signs. We're practically bilingual here. You don't know what recuerdame means? Good grief. Sorry about that. Remember me, he says, when you step into the fullness of your power and influence. Remember me, Jesus says, thief number two. That's all he could muster. Well, that in a stern rebuke for his apparent accomplice. Thief number one hanging out there next to him, and that's a terrible pun if you think of it. Now, hang on, there's one more, one more pun to add to the other two. How did these guys know so much about Jesus? 
Why would Jesus include these two rotten apples in his work at all? Did thief number two receive his promise of paradise because he believed? Is this repentance that we're witnessing? Luke doesn't offer us the level of detail we might want, but it makes me wonder if Jesus maybe spent the night in a holding cell with these two clowns that God so loved. You know how it is on death row, just sitting around waiting for your execution. Actually, it would be really weird if you did. I hope you don't. But you know how people talk. How did these two people figure out, or how did thief number two figure out that Jesus was innocent, and how did thief number one come to decide that he wasn't? I think Jesus spoke to these two men about a new world in which love was the law, a new regime in which mercy and forgiveness were the currency. I think Jesus used the hours of the early morning to invite them to dream with him of a day when evil and violence would finally fall away completely. Whatever Jesus did or didn't tell these two beloved sons of God in whatever they did or didn't have of a late night conversation, number two begs to not be forgotten. Either way, all three of them were on the precipice of a new world now. Breath wouldn't linger long, they knew, for any of them. And one of them, thief number two, could see it from there. He could see it. But Jesus had to name it for him, and Jesus named it paradise. Now, is paradise a place in, in the super distant past, or is it some future location, some distant garden we have to work to achieve or possibly reachieve? Maybe paradise was both, past and present. Ultimately, paradise, friend, is peace. It's a place even thieves can let their guard down. Now, the church has tried to define paradise here as heaven, but that, too, is a metaphor way too weak for what's going on. Don't lose track of the point here. Thief number two caught a glorious glimpse of how it all works. And what an astonishing answer to the question of the ages. Is anyone too far gone for the long arm of love? Is anyone in the end undeserving of mercy? Has anyone committed one crime too many to be counted worthy of coming down from their particular cross? We all have them, you see. Crosses, that is. We all suffer, but we don't see straight, a straight line from these skullish places of pain and suffering to paradise itself, do we? Anyway, Jesus seems to be the only one nonsensical enough to marry pain and paradise in the same breath. Oh, we're accustomed to thinking about paradise after all of this, somewhere out there in the distant future on some other distant shore. Not here, certainly not here, not now, not in the midst of all of this. You see, Jesus says now and we hear later. Jesus says today and we hear once we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. But Jesus says rejoice now no matter what cross temporarily holds you. James, the natural-born brother of Jesus, said it this way, count it all joy when you suffer all kinds of trials and tribulations, and we hate James for it because we know deep in our bones that he's right. Friends, there's nothing kingly about this scene, nothing regal or royal about hanging on a rugged rack, naked, jeered, and mocked by onlookers, unless, oh, unless... We think of a king as the one who gets the final word, the one whose wit and whimsy become the law of the land. In that case, this gory scene of human suffering is indeed a throne room, a vast and glorious hall where there sits before us a ruler unrivaled. If possessing the power that undoes power fits your definition of a king, then indeed crown this one once and for all, because who else goes this far, friend? Who else stoops this low to recover wayward hearts? Don't look up to see this king. Look down where broken things pile up. That's where you'll find him. You want to know why Jesus still cuts through the noise for me? You want to know why he still matters? Watch him. Watch what he does. 
I don't need a king unless, unless, friend, love and mercy are the essence of real power and authority. If that's the case, put a crown on this one. This final thought. Too many keyboards to look for today. I wonder what thief number two stole that landed him in this precarious position. You ever think about things like that? History preserves no memory of such details, but one thing I do know for sure, friend, is that he stole my heart that dark and long day. Didn't start out that way, but this ended up being his greatest heist. And less because of what he got his hands on than what he got his eyes on that day that night fell at noon. We still talk about him all these centuries later because of what he found. You see, friend, he found mercy and forgiveness. He found paradise. He found a place of rest, a garden, a peaceful place where all things thrive. He found what he most needed to be restored, to reverse that slow and deadly work of want and isolation, that self-inflicted distance, whether it be self-inflicted or not. You see, isolation cannot, it must not be tolerated. Nail the worst of us to a piece of wood and lift us against a blackening sky and love will still find us there. That's never been an exception to this rule that I can think of. You see, we say Jesus was God precisely because he was capable of everything except tolerating the suffering and the isolation of anyone, of anyone. Friends, this is a story of extravagance, of wild mercy and boundless love. But it's so good to be able to tell you today that the reserve of heavenly love and mercy and grace was not tapped out that day with a thief on either side. This nameless man didn't find forgiveness and a promise of paradise because of his true repentance or the sincere quality of his remorse. No, no, no. This was always how far love was able and willing to go to rescue a lost soul from despair and isolation. And the same is still true. So I say crown this man. Change that little wooden sign above his head. He is no king of the Jews. That's an insult. He's the king of the whole shebang, if you ask me. Crown this broken man king. But not with gold or precious jewels or the treasures of men. Crown this one with something far more sacred, something far more common. Crown this one with sweet grass and thorns the handiwork of Mother Earth herself. Crown Jesus King because this is heaven's final word. This is love's final decree. You are loved. And so am I. Unworthiness died that day, friend. Shame died that day. Isolation itself died that beautiful, horrific day. What a glorious day. Happy Christ the King Sunday.